Before we begin today's episode, I want to say that I know I have some viewers in the great country of New Zealand. And in fact, I know I have some viewers in Christchurch, New Zealand, where an unimaginable tragedy happened last week. That if you are listening from that region, whether you were directly impacted or not, that your country, your people, your community are in my thoughts. And I hope that you can find some solace in this episode. What a jam that song is. That's the Beastie Boys. And I do not have permission to use that, you know? So will I get sued? Maybe. Perfectly possible. But you know, in today's world, on the internet, do you really need permission to do anything? I'm not sure. And realistically, what are they going to sue me for? You know, like, what are you going to take? Um, like, literally nothing belongs to me. What do you want, my student debt? Take it. What do you want, medical debt? I can take a doctor visit right now. I don't know what you want. You know, but whatever you want. I mean, I have nothing. What do I have? I have a couple dumbbells. I have, um, I have a camera that I use. And it's on a cre- it's credit card debt. Everything I own. I mean, what are you going to take? You know? What do you want, my laptop? Guess what, don't own it. What do you want, my car? Guess what, paying it off. What do you want, my house? Guess what, don't own one. So, you know, sue me. Sue me, Beastie Boys. And after all, I draw your attention to one of your other songs. It goes something like this. You gotta fight for your right to use music in your podcast intro that technically you don't own and technically you were not given written consent to use. I mean, those are your words. You can't make this shit up. You said that. I didn't say that. You you wrote that in a song in like 1998. That's amazing. Like, how do you even... I, I can't even fabricate this evidence. It's clear as a day. So go ahead and try to sue me, because I'd say the defense is pretty sound here. Welcome to the podcast. This is the State of the Universe. My name's Brendan. This episode features Bernie Taylor, the one and only. He's been on the podcast before, episode number 12. And in that episode, we talked about his book, Before Orion. In this episode, we talk about some new concepts he's working on that have to do with biological time, humans, biological clocks, and the way that we use the moon to keep time. Historically, the way we've used the moon to keep time and how that separates our species from every other species on this planet. And if that has implications for finding intelligent life elsewhere. Is the moon important? It turns out it is. Okay, I'm going to spoil it for you because we already know it is from an evolutionary standpoint. And we also talk about that. What role did the moon play in the evolution of human beings, both in the evolution of our psychological minds, which is what Bernie covers, and in the evolution of life itself, which I talk a lot about. And so with that being said, people, don't sue me. Don't hate me. Shout out to my patrons. If you would like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash the state of the universe. You can get cool gifts. You can get cool things. You can get books from the people that I have on the podcast. You can get all sorts of things. You can submit questions. You can ask me to interview someone. If you're like, man, I really want to see you interview that astronaut. That, I don't know, what's his, what's an astronaut's name? Mark McGuire? That's not a real person. But I don't know. Maybe you want to see me interview some guy named Mark McGuire. You can ask me on Patreon if you are a patron. But if you're not a patron, you suck. I mean, it's simple, really. 
The equation is simple. If you're not a patron, you suck. Anyway, check us out on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you watch it. Make sure you give us a review. Five stars. If you don't give us five stars, you suck. I mean, do I have to make this any simpler? iTunes, same thing. Five stars. Leave a review. Say you love me. Say you hate me. But even if you say you hate me, rate it five stars or you suck. Anyway, people, subscribe on YouTube. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. You know the drill. I hope you enjoy the episode. Where do we, we have where, a cosmos. Do, where do you want to start us, Bernie? Where do you want to start this conversation? So I believe today that we're going to talk about the most important question in the cosmos and including humanity. That's setting the us question, up big. That's a big one. It's a huge it one. And if we, that's why I say if we can, if we can, we can solve this one today. At least come to an answer, some sort of answer. We could split the, the noble. And I believe that the answer to this, well, the question itself is: Are we alone in the cosmos? And that is the foundation of religions. It's the foundation of science. People looking for the Big Bang and so forth. They're looking and SETI. Everybody is looking for this answer. It is the foundation of who we are. When we look into the night skies, we see constellations and we see stars and we believe we're up there. And we believe that there's people beyond them, beyond them or light, some sort of life form. And that's the question we're going to ask today. Now, I believe the way to place to begin this question is in California. And it's not at the SETI Institute, and it's not at Hollywood, or even Disneyland. I believe that the answer is first looked at on the California beaches. In April to, April to June, at the, at the spring tides around the new and the full moons. Because at that time, there's a fish that swims out of the ocean. It's called a grunion. It swims out on, on the highest of the high tides at the spring times. Spring tides. And the female lays its eggs. And the male comes up on the males come up on the same high tide they fertilize the egg and when the next height next wave comes up they're both carried back into the sea okay and so the california and then the next spring tide um 15 days later comes way up on the beach and it washes the eggs or actually not the eggs at that time the juveniles into the ocean so the california grunion is tied to the tides Interesting concept. Rare among animals that comes out to spawn like that. So here's 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 a question for the astrophysicist. Okay, I'm ready. Cap. What would happen if the moon was twice the distance from the Earth as it is today? What would happen with the grunion? This is interesting uh, because the moon was once half the distance it is Correct. today. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, if the moon were twice the distance that it is today... What we would see, and what we do see, I think the moon recedes its orbit about, what I think, an inch per year, an inch and a half per year, something like that, some small number. And if it were two times the distance it is right now, the Earth's rotation would be much, much slower. So we could start there. You'd obviously have biological effects due to not being able to see the sunlight for extended periods of time compared to now. But the big one would be the impact on the tides. You would see a significantly damped tide in, in the oceans. And so I think that's what you're getting at. Is that what you're getting at, Bernie? It is where I'm getting And the tide, the grunion wouldn't have that, that 15, that, um, let's say the 15 day cycle, the cycle of exactly. the, it would be that different time period. Therefore, the, the life history strategy of the grunion would have to be different. 
Correct. Because the juveniles, when they get washed out to the sea, they would have to grow faster, grow, grow slower, so that they, they, would have to, they would be ready for that longer period of time when the, the wave comes up again, a more distant um, spring tides. Right. Now, what would happen if there, were no, there was no moon? Well, if there was no moon at all, well, geez, let's, let's put some criteria on this, okay? Let's assume Earth is the way it is right now, and you take away the moon. Mm-hmm. Okay, very quickly, very quickly, you would have a dampening of tides completely. But there's some something else that I want to bring up. I don't know if you have this wrapped up in your ideas. I don't know if you've considered this yet, but this is interesting nonetheless. Um, I, I brought some, I went out and I searched the literature and I found some interesting, some interesting calculations that have been done by people that considered what if we had no moon. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that's been considered is that right now our Earth is tilted about 23 and a half degrees, okay? That's what causes the seasons. The fact that we have a tilt is the reason that we have a cyclical summer and a cyclical winter. The reason it gets really cold and then really hot in the same location. Mm-hmm. Now, that tilt varies on some time scale by about plus or minus one degree. And those variances, Bernie as you may know, are what causes some of the large recessions of the ice caps down into places like Pennsylvania. Essentially, the reason ice ages happen is those small one-degree differences. Now, if we had no moon, the moon, according to all the models, acts as a stabilizer for that Mm -hmm. variance. If we didn't have the moon, and if it wasn't as big as it is, we would be looking at probably a plus or minus 10 degree variance. That would be enough to cause ice ages to happen every 10,000 years. Essentially, I wouldn't say it would wipe out life, but it would make it so incredibly implausible. Correct. And as, as such, it's also a short-term stabilizer. The Earth would be like a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. With a, um, that we wouldn't have oceans as we have them today. They'd be sort of sloshing across the continents. Yes. We wouldn't have that stabilizing force. Mm-hmm. So the moon becomes a... So in the life history strategy of the Grunion, it could not exist without the moon as, as it currently is or without any moon. That's correct. It's, it's, and there's many animals, I imagine, who have structured, have evolved such that they rely on the natural cycle of the moon in the night sky. Exactly. And that's really important. And so we're going to go to, we're going to go stay on the Pacific coast. We're going to go up to the Seattle area. And there's a tribe called the Tualop. And the Tualop have what their first first salmon ceremony. And how they find the the salmon, or the first salmon, is in the springtime, uh, before the salmon would arrive, they sent out their scouts into the woods and they look for the white pine butterfly. And when they when they find the white pine butterfly, they then set they then watch the tides. And when the next spring tide or high tide comes up to the beach or comes up to the lodge, I should say. And when these big, heavy canoes can would just slide into the water, they go out to find the first salmon. And so the 12 Indians or the top tribes they are timing the first salmon that come up the rivers in the, fundamentally the same way as the grunion. So we have a thinking man doing the same behavior as the non-thinking grunion. That's very interesting. 
It's fascinating, yeah. So the, the twelves have been doing this forever, uh, as far as we know. Um, and why do they? Why do the? Why are they working off the tides? Just the salmon themselves have a soul lunar strategy. And Correct. salmon, when they come when they come up the rivers, um, the, well, the salmon's let's say biological clock is a little different from ours. At nighttime, melatonin makes you sleep, and the light wakes you up. As a concept, salmon are just the opposite. Salmon, when the nighttime they go in the darkness, and the light they stop. Well, it's not just the light of the sun, the sun, but it's also the light of the moon. So around the moon, the full moon period, let's say seven or seven or eight days, the salmon slow down or stop. And then they move more frequently just after the, let's say seven days after the full moon. But let's say hypothetically they peaked at the new moon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Isn't another one with astrophysicist problems, ready? This is simply one though. So the cycle of the sun is three, 365 plus days. The cycle of the moon is 29 and a half. 12, 12 times 29 and a half is 11 days short of 365. Right. So, so what would happen if, the Jan- if January 13th in year one, the salmon were migrating up, what would happen in year two? In year two, we would be 11 days behind. We'd be 11 days behind. Right. What would happen in year three? We would be 22 days behind. In year four? 33. You're testing my math now, my arithmetic. I need to get a calculator. Okay, now it's a trick question. Yeah. So now we've lost a month, essentially. You've lost a month. That's the essence of it. Now, the salmon, the winter salmon, for example, that, um, that, let's say, that that would arrive just after the winter solstice or spawn after the winter solstice, they can't go back in time forever because then they become summer salmon. Mm -hmm. They have to resynchronize themselves. Okay? And so what the Tuolup were doing, the Tuolup tribe in Seattle, they recognized that. And they recognize that the, the winter, they recognize that shifts back, but it has to reset itself. And the resetting, how they reset it was they went out and looked for the, the white pine butterfly. Because they believed that the white pine butterfly was on the same biological clock schedule as the salmon. That's, see, that makes me skeptical. You know what also makes me skeptical? Okay. Most tribes and the way that they, they tend Ooh. to do things. Um, not, and here's the, the interesting thing. The interesting thing is that the reason it makes me skeptical is because I don't rely on it to survive. Exactly. If I was in the tribe and I relied on that to survive, if, yep. if I relied on when the white pine butterfly, when we can see it, we know we need to go fishing. If mm-hmm. I used that as a tool to survive, then I would be on board, you know, exactly. but unfortunately I buy my salmon at the grocery store. And so we have, and that's the difference divide. between us and hunter gatherers. Right. We're going to go across the Pacific ocean. To Taiwan, we're gonna we're gonna listen on the Yami people. The Yami are indigenous people that predate the the Chinese that arrived on the island. Okay, so the okay. Guomidang. The Yami, um, they synchronize off of a, so a fish called a flying fish. And you, if you go to Hawaii, you see these flying fish kind of skimming the surface. You go out in the snorkel boats on this flying fish, and they go out. They they time the first fly, flying fish to twelve lunations from the last time it first appeared. And they go out, they take their boats out, their lights and um, torches, and they look for the flying fish in the surf. If they see the flying fish, they then go back to the, the, their camps and they hold their the first the New Year's ceremony. And that resets the calendar for over 300 species of other fish. Okay. Okay. And if they don't find – if the flying fish isn't available at that time – they go out the next luna- the next a month later, a lunation later, and then by that it's always there by the second one. So they so they actually never figured out a way to they never had a mathematical formula 
to, to resynchronize the calendar in the same way as the Yami, I'm same way as the Twelve Indians, mm -hmm. is they timed off another fish, which sets all the rest of the calendar in motion. It's can, a, I, can I ask you a quick, Barney? Sure. How do you come up with these correlations? Is it a lot of reading? Did these ideas get proposed sort of in fragments by different people? Because this is really interesting. You're putting together a lot of pieces of the puzzle, and I can only imagine you have many more that will go. Oh, over. we got well. So, so what we're what we're well, we're gonna step, gonna go there in like a one minute. Okay. So what what we're learning okay. now is that the migrations of of these animals, the shift from earlier earlier to later in the year, is due to being solar lunar timed. Mm hmm. Okay. And it was about, I was working on biological time, my previous book, probably about 13 years ago. I was working on this concept of the salmon, because I live in the Pacific Northwest. And what we're talking now about the salmon migration wasn't known at that time. Um, and I borrowed the, the data from Fish and Wildlife Departments, and we worked, it was a collaborative process. Okay? Um, we're all on the same page. And we found that all these events, you know, the, the spawning, the migration up the river, and they're all um, solar intertimed. And they were working on, solar clocks before then, our typical Gregorian clock. They weren't using um, lunar calendars, which is what all the Native Americans doing. So there was one night, I'm going to tell you this story, and it was it was Christmas Eve. It was like two in the morning. I'm working on this book project, and I pretty much figured out, I figured out their, their, the lunar timing. But then I, try, I said, well, you know, I'm going to go salmon fishing. When should I go? And I came across that same problem that we're, at, we're answering now that the Yami and the Tualop had answered. And I thought, oh my God, in none of these books, they had, they had put the lunar, the solar and lunar timing together. There's thousands of paper, papers in the primary literature that talk about lunar events of animals, mm -hmm. but none of them have ever coordinated the two. So I contacted someone who I would, had been working helping me. His name is, um, John Palmer. And Palmer was, he's brilliant. Okay. You know, you've had a lot of interesting guests. Palmer's brilliant. Okay. Palmer was the first one that came up with a concept of um, animals, humans specifically, being influenced by magnetism. And I think he published the paper in Science or Nature some 50 or 60 years ago, and he should have had a Nobel Prize. Okay, I'm going to put that out there for anybody who's listening. Um, retroactive, he promised Palmer should get one. It's so hard. Um, I, I will interject, though, and say that one of the shitty things about the Nobel, and there's a list of them, is that they don't give Nobel Prizes for biology. Well, right? yeah, well, it could be physics, right? So yeah, it was you could, the MRI. But it's really hard to convince a physicist that, I mean, a, you know, like a classical <laughs> nineteen, <laughs> a classical nineteen fifties physicist. You know, it's going to be really hard to convince them of anything that's sort of like out of the norm. Let so alone I called Pom exactly. So I called Palmer up two days later, and Palmer was a he wrote a few books on biological clocks, and he's circadian rhythm he was at that time considered the world's foremost authority on the subject mm -hmm. i called him up two days later the day after christmas and i asked him the question i said has anybody written or put in print anywhere that there can be that the soul lunar timing is shifting the migrations and events of animals from one year to the next and that if an animal is to have an event on let's say a new moon it has to be um, geared up or other parts of his licensure strategy have to move in that direction beforehand, which would thus be solar lunar timed. And there was silence on the other phone. There was silence for like a minute. And Palmer was one of he's quick. He, and he comes back and he says, I can't believe we missed it. 
And it was an extraordinary moment. And I was like, oh, my God, I actually discovered something. <laughs> okay. That's In that moment, I believed I discovered it was something that hadn't been the primary literature and hadn't been – this was Palmer's thing, right? Yeah. He's a chronobiologist. So then, I, then you know, I, my ego went down a few notches like, you know, maybe, what if someone else did know this? What if people did not have Safeways and Costco's and um, refrigeration, all these sort of things? They probably need to know this. So they went out to the tribes in the Columbia Basin where I am, and I started asking the question. And they kept telling me the story, the story about the, the coyote and the swallows, and the swallows precede the, the, precede the salmon coming up the river as its own penance, and this, it's a big, long story. Everybody told me the same story. And at that point, I hadn't, heard the, I hadn't known the Yami story or the Twelve story. And I was like, well, tell me the math. Tell me how it works. I want to know. Um, give me the numbers. And they couldn't do it. But it was in their hunting and fishing practices. It was in their lunar calendar. And the Columbia River tribes, they, they clock, you know, dozens of animals and different species of salmon, plus deer and elk and so on, with the same soil lunar timing. It's in their calendar. So how do they come to this place? Was well, I was asking the question. This question everybody asks, well, where are the salmon? Are they going to be early later this year? Because it's the Pacific Northwest. It's kind of a big deal. Um, and the, the answer was that I could say it would be, well, hypothetically new moon, but I couldn't say which one unless I went out and looked for the, 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 the swallow sisters from among the Columbia Basin tribes or went searching for the white pine butterfly among the Tuala. And it sent me in this, this, mo this, this uh, direction of trying to figure out the math. And this is fundamentally how it works. It's a four-year cycle. Okay? I'm ready. So – so year one could hypothetically be um, actually. So it shifts back, it shifts back for three years. Then the fourth year, it's fifty-fifty which way it goes. So I can't, you can't tell the fourth year, and then it goes back to you know this this one two three again mm -hmm. as a concept because that's how and that's how calendars work. So if you look at calendars, actually not our Gregorian calendar, but calendars among the ancient peoples, among the the, the Jews and uh, Babylonians, so forth, they had this this four year um, recalibrating re for the same reason and so it was a it was a search to find it it was for search to find a simple answer that um, people had been asking for eternity and so we're we're now going to go back to the pacific we're going to go to the south pacific and there's there's islanders that the the women in the among in the i don't want to say the, sorry, the tribes but in the in the society the women say that they birth on the tides, which is symbolic of them living off the ocean. And so there was an anthropologist who, who, who you know, took the question seriously. And he, he, he looked, he, he um, charted back to the station period, and he found that, yes, in fact, they were, they were going, based on the hospital data, they were given birth on these tides, tides, but they were the tides when the men were present. And there were the tides when the men were not fishing. So when the men were out there fishing, they weren't there to mingle with the mm -hmm. women. And therefore, didn't have, they didn't have children. And so – and then what also happens is among, among women, you might have heard this in, you know, in the dorm circles a few years ago, is that women will synchronize their menstrual cycles in a group um, such that they're, they're already at the same time. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, and, I never lived in a dorm. Thank God. Okay. Never, okay. Oh my God. And this God. work, had, that concept had been published in Nature a few years back, 
And they yes, I've the definitely heard it. Yeah, definitely yeah they took the pheromones it. from one woman and they spread it around among a group and they found that they resync, they synchronized towards the women. And in, in, in the Pacific Northwest, among the, in the tribes, they actually have a word from a, for a woman who moves from one longhouse family to another. And that when she moves, she'll resynchronize to their cycle and become one with them. Do you know the word? Uh, no, but if I heard it, I probably couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> That's what I figured. Actually, I have been told the word, okay? I've been told the word, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but there's, there's an actual word for this. Mm-hmm. And so so a few things. So we're saying that plant, we're saying these animals that are critical to survival, people live on the coast, have soul lunar timing. People who live off the oceans have a cal- have calendars and tradition, hunting, hunting, gathering traditions that are tied to these solar lunar timings. And we're also now going to put out there that the female, female women have a menstrual cycle that is timed to the, the tides. So 29, 20, t- 28 days on average, 20, 20, 29 days on average. Yeah. And so Bernie, real quick, I, I was interested in this because I, I heard you talk about this before. And so I, I delved in the literature to see if I could find anyone who had studied this. Mm-hmm. And I found one study only in 1980, and I won't even tell you the results because it only consisted of 312 women, which is a small sample size. Yes. They essentially found 50-50. If you take into account the, the sample size, they essentially found it's a 50-50 chance. I am interested in two things. Mm-hmm. Number one, whether or not this is a real phenomenon – and number mm-hmm. two, why no one has looked into it on a more serious note since 1980. This is one of those things, Bernie, I think that sounds outlandish almost a little bit on the surface. Be- and no one, for whatever reason, whether it's they're not able to get funding for such a project, whether it's there's better things to study in their minds, no one has looked into it. No one has looked into it on a large scale. Because I do think it's interesting, but it's also sort of like a niche topic, right? A lot of people probably don't want to study whether or not women get their periods at the same time every month. Um, well, so it's it's an on average. And yeah. so why don't people study this question? And, and it's one word. And it's the word that scared the fishery biologist, the moon. Because when we think of the moon in popular circles, you know, it's werewolves and, you know, the all these these phenom these um, unusual phenomenon, and people think that they're um, mad people running around the streets in the full moon and all this sort of stuff. What's really happening is that the people who are running around the street mad during the full moon, they were mad other than the full moon. They just happened to be awake during the full moon running around the streets. That's kind yeah. of what it is. That's so right. this question had been asked had been asked a few other papers out there, and what they found that is that people that are closer to um, let's say agricultural societies have a greater propensity to be synchronized to the, the moon. And when you're in, um, so, let's say industrial societies, it's much less so because we have light, we have light and dark illumination from the electric lights. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just a thing. But the people, these people in the South Pacific were not working off of electric lights, nor were the Yami. They were working off of the natural light, the sun, the moon and the stars in Shikata. And so the, when you talk about the moon, people think all these sort of voodoo sort of concepts. But really, it is, it is, I believe it's at the core of who we are. So let's, let's, let's say this. So we, let's say that it is 20, 20 days on average. And that what would, 
and that these people are these these people these islanders are synchronizing to the moon what would happen if the moon was twice the distance from earth well if it immediately became that way then then the synchronicity would be out of whack well they couldn't be because then it would be let's say it would be a 40 50 day cycle right hypothetically Mm -hmm. and they're on 28 right so naturally they would not so they could if they could think if they could think about the timing itself and rationalize it they could then come up with that timing but it wouldn't be intuitive correct yeah now what well what would happen well, all right, imagine you have this population of fishermen, okay? Mm-hmm. What do you think would happen if they could live in a bubble, meaning no mm-hmm. technological advancement, they fished the same way for thousands of years? What would happen as the moon receded from the Earth? What do you think would happen? As well, it wouldn't the... be thousands of years. The receding would have to be hundreds of millions. Okay, well, we have, what, 1.5 inches a year? What, whatever. It doesn't matter. In the, in the bubble of these people, what happens as the moon recedes? What do you think happens to the civilization? So what would happen is that the animals themselves would phase shift. For the animals to ex- the animals that are timing off the sun and the moon in combination, they would have to evolve to their their mm-hmm. own biological clocks to the new system. Yes. Okay. So let's 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 switch it in the other direction. Is it possible that Homo sapiens, if Homo sapiens are in fact t- tied to this women's menstrual cycle, which is tied roughly tied to the moon? What would happen hundreds of millions of years ago when hypothetically the lunar cycle was 20 days? Could we have made the connection? Having not have it already, could we made that, that theoretical mental connection that the, the women, that the cycle, that we could tell the cycle, the moon is time to anything else if, if we ourselves don't, didn't feel it? That's a good question. And I think probably not. Probably not. No. So if, so as a, as a concept, the moon was probably our first clock. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it's a good one. Probably live, we probably lived by the beach, okay? And we watched the tides. And we were, uh, we did pretty well. But to get off the beach, you had to have, you have to be able to figure out um, multiple lunations because you'd have to go off into a direction and come back again, okay? So we're stuck, we're on the beach and there's lots of food and we came to that point possibly because the women's menstrual cycle was in sync with the moon. Mm-hmm. And so that might have been out the first way that we were able to consciously tell time that we could we could think about what happened in the past, but we can also pr- predict what's going to happen in the future. So dolphins, chimpanzees, and elephants are highly intelligent animals. What they can't do is rationally tell time. Right, yeah. I'm interested in this, actually. This is cool to me. I've they can't looked, tell time. No animals can. No, right? as far as we know, none of them can consciously tell time. And that's a tough thing to test. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll give the viewers that. We'll, it's yeah. it's hard to test, but the way we test it, to my understanding, is we see if they can keep a beat, right? You can see tons of videos on Facebook of dogs, like, nodding their head or tapping their paws to some beat, right? Mm-hmm. Because the ability to keep a beat is pretty similar to the ability to tell time. Mm-hmm. None of them can do it. All of those videos you see are either complete outliers or or dogs that are mimicking humans or animals that are mimicking humans keeping a beat. But in a closed setting, no animal, no matter how intelligent, 
can come close to keeping a beat. Some, there's some like birds that can keep one beat if -hmm. you train it really well, but it Mm -hmm. cannot switch it up. If you change the tempo of the song, it will take a year for them to pick up the new song. Telling time is not inherent to animals the way it is to humans. But so the question is, I don't believe it's actually inherent to humans. I believe it's a learned skill based on the women's menstrual cycle and being timed to the moon Hmm. and sync with the moon. And what about the tilt of the earth? That's important, right? The fact that we have seasons is very important. But well, we have seasons in, in the northern and southern hemispheres. Correct. But we don't around equatorial zones. I was going to say that. And humans have evolved. The cradle of life is very much in, in, in an area the that doesn't have drastic changes based on season. Exactly. It had to be off the moon. It, it, there's, and the, so there was work done by a um, – I can't remember. It was, it was in with Nature of Science – and he looked at the Serengeti wildebeest, and he found that the, the wildebeest drop their young most prolifically around the new moon. And what that meant was that this is just isn't about the salmon and the butterflies. This is about large undulates. These are about the animals we hunted. And when I saw that paper, um, I can't remember who wrote it, but um, he, I started thinking, you know, um, maybe this is for, for larger animals, the deer and the elk. And, of course, in the Native Americans' um, calendars, the deer and the elk have these lunar – it's all in their lunar timing. And then someone said to me, well, if Native Americans had it, maybe it's also in the record back to the caves in Europe in the Paleolithic times, which set me in this direction we, we talked about in the last program. Mm-hmm. And, and I went to look in the, the, the images of the cave in Lascaux, France. And, in fact, all, they all have nomenclature next to them, most of the animals. And the nomenclature coincides with the, the life history strategies and events of these animals. Um, and typically the, the, the fall running season um, or, the, or the drop in the young in the, in the summer to spring, combination, combination of the two. And so it makes sense that if Native Americans had it, and that's what they used to survive, Paleolithic man, meaning you and me, um, 17,000 years ago, let's go, or deeper in time, we had it as well. So this is a universal this is a universal principle of people. And without this universal principle, this, this this ability to tell time, I don't believe that we could exist. That's fair. Have you fair. Have, let me ask you this. Have yeah. you been outside during a full moon and looked up? Yes. What can you see? You mean besides the face of the moon? Yeah, assuming you're looking <laughs> in the yeah, in the immediate area around the moon, what can you see? Anything? Uh, I don't remember. You probably couldn't see much in terms of constellations, right? Oh, that's correct. Yeah, you can't see the other stars, yeah. Yeah, you could see some on the horizon, but in the immediate vicinity around the moon, you're not going to be able to see many constellations. You're not going to be able to make them out. And so I'm wondering, Bernie, if you've made a connection between the fact that the visibility of constellations also depends on the periodicity of the moon. Going from new to full. So I'm familiar the... with that concept because well, I was in San Diego just a few days ago and they were talking about the, they're looking for the, the origin of the Big Bang and that there's, let's say, you know, 10, 15 nights or 20 nights of the month they could actually observe. Because mm-hmm. the other ones, of course, have the full moon. And in military circles, they look at the lunar calendar in terms of when they're going to attack or potentially defend because mm-hmm. they you don't go running out under a full moon because you're it's like daylight you can't have a surprise attack anyway right. and interestingly to tie back to animals 
Lions and tigers tend not to hunt during a full moon for the same reason. 100% correct. I talked about that before, Ryan. And what they do is not only do they not hunt during the full moon because they're looking for that surprise attack. Mm-hmm. They they look for the period after the full moon when the sun – so after the – let's say if we, at the full moon, the sunrise and the moon – the sunset and the moon rise at the same time. But if five days – as you pass the full moon, the moon rises later and later. And so you, at, after the full moon, you go to a dark period for about seven days. Um, so it goes light, dark, light. And there's work that was published that showed that the, the lions were hunting in that, that time. Mm-hmm. So that they – but, but the work wasn't done so much to see – show not the hunting – they were hunting animals. But that's when people were being preyed on by the lions. And that mm-hmm. was the, the person. It was, it was, uh, I believe it was on National Geographic. And that's um, the origin of all werewolf myths. Is it? Yeah, that no, would make sense. I don't sense. know. I'm yeah. making that up, but it might be. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that, as a concept, yeah, it's tied to the these animals are tied to the moon. So, the, so we're going to go back to um, going to go back to space, and we're, we're going to kind of think about this question. We're going to go to the Fermi paradox. Oh, actually, before we go there, so we're saying that Homo sapiens have this 20, 28 to twenty nine and a half day cycle. Um, it's also a similar cycle among other primates, or actually of the primates, which we would be in the, the largest sphere of, but also bats and the elephant shrew. So there's, on this planet, we have, let's say, hypothetically, probably about 20 species, 15 to 20 species among a million and a half species of animals that actually have this, have a menstrual cycle timing, and only about half of them would be roughly tied to the moon. Okay? Okay. So base, so let's say let's say let's say ten hypothetically are tied to the moon, and this a million and a half species of animals. So what's the percentage of species of animals on this planet that can be tied to the moon? A menstrual cycle that they can fun- fundamentally tied to as a clock. You said ten, ten out of one point five million. Yep, a very small number. It's a very small number. It's out to um, almost a million decimal places. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's what it is. Um, so let's go a back. Million, to, we're going to look at how people. Hmm. Sorry, how, I'm doing mental math. Forgive that's me. Right. So how how have we historically looked at for intelligent life in the cosmos? And the formula that most people use is so called so called Drake equation. And the Drake equation, you know, the first the first few factors look at um, how many stars are formed, how many stars, how many planets from those stars. How many of them are habitable? What's called blue planets? Fraction that life emerges, and then they go to the fraction 0.05 fraction where intelligence evolves. Now, where intelligence evolves is, you know, I believe that dolphins and chimps and and elephants and whales would fall into that intelligence. But the next one is the fraction capable of interstellar communication. That's half. That's half of that. Mm-hmm. But if we look at the concept where we were that the, this biological timing to the moon with the menstrual cycle among primates related animals, us, um, is so rare that it's out to almost a millionth decimal place. I don't believe we could actually say half of the, half of the planets that actually develop intelligent life of some sort have the capacity to have interstellar communication. It's very interesting. First, what we should do, Bernie is, is give a, uh, Talk about the Drake equation quick for people who are okay, completely okay. unfamiliar. Um, whenever, whenever this is funny, whenever 
I bring up completely unfamiliar. The thing that mm-hmm. pops into my mind is my mother. I'm always like, I need to explain this as if I'm talking to my mother. Because I know she's out there listening. She's one of the people out there listening. So I'll explain it to her. I'll explain it to everyone else. The Drake equation was this equation that wasn't necessarily brought up as a as a as a formal equation meant to prove or meant to show anything definitively. It was more or less brought up as a a way to sort of maybe hypothesize what number of intelligent civilizations there could be in our galaxy or in the universe at large depending on what numbers you plug in. It was it was hypothesized by a man named Nathan Drake and it was actually formulized in Green Bank, West Virginia. There's a cool plaque there that I've seen. I was in the conference room that the equation was drawn up in. And it was eventually published in Nature. And it's used as a guideline for SETI missions today, which are search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And it's so, supposed to give you a rough number. What kind of numbers of intelligent life should we expect to find in the galaxy? And depending on the numbers you plug in, you can get anywhere from one like us, or zero, depending on what numbers you put in, to a million, 10 million, if you want to be very, very optimistic. Now, Bernie, you're saying that we should be taking into account more information into this Drake equation. It doesn't consider enough. And the lost consideration is the moon. Exactly. So he jumps from, and I I have a great respect for um, the equation, but he jumps from where intelligent life evolves to interstellar communication, which is really SETI, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the, that's the listening for radio waves in the, um, in the cosmos. Yes. And so the question then becomes what creates, what creates intelligent life? And then what creates then timekeeping life? So I, I'm fully on board. That can be dolphins, whales, chimpanzees, and um, and other intelligent type of animals in the cosmos, and we could we could go to some Alpha Centauri or whatever it is, and some planet, distant moon, and we could be swimming with a, something like a dolphin. I fully accept that, mm-hmm. no question. But then the question then becomes, what are the chances? Re- rephrasing this, how we just we just spent the last hour looking at it, what are the chances that there can be tell if if we became intelligent via our synchronization with the moon? And if they don't either, they have multiple moons, or their moon is off of the synchronization from assuming they even have an animal with a menstrual cycle, could they possibly have picked up this same timekeeping that we did? And I would suggest no, unless there's some other way that people learn to tell time. And archaeologists, anthropologists are looking for this missing link, and they're looking at the you know the, the different you know skeletons and skulls and so forth, and one's a little bigger than the other, and this one has a little, you know larger area for the cerebral hemispheres, and they're hypothesizing that well this is the missing link and so forth. What if the missing link has nothing to do with the the uh, the cranium? What if the missing link has entirely to do with how we came to tell time? And that this thing just happened among um, whatever our common ancestors with the chimpanzee was. But this could happen among Neanderthals and um, and um, Denisovians and Homo erectus and so forth. It could have happened millions of times on this planet that there was a sort of start of of time thinking. And when I went to, I'm 54 now. When I was in high school, um, evolution was explained with a tree, and in that tree we had the 
and some primate at the bottom, and we're some branch in the tree, and um, Neanderthals were another branch, and, and Homo erectus was further down our our branch. Well, archaeologists and anthropologists don't see it that way anymore. They actually look at that there's like multiple emergence of of um, people, mm-hmm. or I'm not sure if the people is the right word, but homos and hominids. And uh, I believe that the answer to that, how you can have multiple emergences, is that you actually kept it kept rebooting itself. And that there were these um, hominids that learned to tell time, but they only got so far. And some of them got off the beach. And some of them learned how to synchronize, to resynchronize with the with other animals, or the, the white pine butterfly, or the um, or the um, or the, the swallows. And some of them learned to resynchronize resynchronize with the with the sun, and then perhaps the stars. And then they could go not just further up the beach, but they could travel across continents. And learn as they go and improve their their toolkit. So I believe that the missing link is not found in the brain of the hominid. But rather, there is no missing link. Because it happened tens of thousands, possibly millions of times. And that we'll never see it in the cranial formation. Where where it would happen, though, is um, at some point in time... Um, well, hundreds of millions of years ago, we didn't have hominids, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the moon was out of sync was, you know, hu- you know, hundreds of millions of years ago when it was out of sync, we didn't exist and we didn't have this menstrual cycle. Therefore, it couldn't have happened in my mind. And I believe that the test of this whole thing is that as for as long as there's been life on this planet, why are we the first ones to be, as far as we know, to be able to actually tell time? Now, squirrels... You know, they, they they store away their nuts for the winter. But squirrels aren't telling time. They're hoarding when there's a lot of nuts. Mm-hmm. And right? also is- there's evidence that they do it loosely and erratically and by no means structured. Because <laughs> <Of course. laughs> they will bury nuts everywhere that they can find. And most exactly. times they'll never unbury them. They won't remember where they put them. Yeah, They won't actually get to them. They'll die beforehand. So there's no actual evidence that this is a structured thing that squirrels or any animals do they're just hoarding nuts yes and if you said to a chimpanzee you have a choice between you know the the basket of bananas next week or this one banana now the chimpanzee is going to take the one banana that's true yeah we well, it, that's that's something very important about consciousness actually mm-hmm. something very important is that we are the only animal and i hope i'm safe to say this i don't know if there's any others that delay gratification like correct right in that sense others hoard they hoard that's the difference right but they don't hoard in times of scarcity right Right. they will fill themselves first yes right so it's not like they're hoarding in in the sense that i'm gonna starve now so i don't starve later no no no. they're gonna feed now but they're also going to feed later right that is absolutely correct and so um Going back to this Drake equation, actually, so I believe that the test of this lunar hypothesis is that we haven't had, over the many million, you know, hundreds, how far dinosaurs go back, over hundreds of millions of years with animals of different sorts, we didn't have intelligent timekeeping animal that could see the, see the future and reflect on the past in a systematic way until we came along in the last millions of years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that's, that's actually the test. And if if we're on this planet for hundreds of millions of years going forwards, we already have the clock. We don't have to worry about it because we've already figured it out. But 
hundreds of millions of years if we're not on this planet. And actually, we as homo sapiens are not, but chimpanzees are still around. And the chimpanzee clock is out of sync with the with the moon. I don't believe that they will that chimpanzee will learn to tell time. That's a that's that's fair. In fact, the very nature of time is incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. The very idea that we have even invented the concept of time is very interesting. I sat with a couple people recently, and we talked about this, some smart, smart people, and we talked about this for a while. Is time embedded somehow in the universe? Is it fundamental? Or is it a concept that we've invented because it's useful? And the the truth is that it might be something we've invented because it's useful, but our ability to use it separates us from every other living thing. Absolutely. And that question has been asked many times th- throughout um, the history of man. And it's we find in what's called the sacred books. And one of the sacred books we find, or actually the book, a historian book, was Josephus, who wrote in the time of Jesus Christ. And he wrote a book, um, he wrote a book called um, Josephus, actually just called Josephus and the Antiquities. And he has a section there about Abraham, the, the biblical patriarch. And he says that Abraham reasoned that there was a, a creator because the sun and the moon and the stars had an influence on the plants and the animals in this world, which were of use to humans, but were not apparently not of use to the sun and moon and the stars. Huh. Therefore, there was a divine influence that made all this happen. So people, people in ancient times were thinking about these things. And their answer was not, as we're talking about today, but that there had to be a divine influence. Newton asked the same question. Newton had heard, Newton, Newton had never, in his, most of his life, he hadn't been to the beach. But he'd heard about the crabs that had these biological clocks, these rhythms with the tides. And that set Newton off in the direction of how things could be synchronized. So this had been asked before. And, uh, and of course, it was, you know, it's my, my uh, friend, John Palmer, Jack Palmer, who did the work in the biological clocks and the MRI, is he was on a circle of people that are trying to figure out this singularity or a common formula that would make all these things happen. And, the, and they didn't come to an answer, and neither did the Yami and the, the Tualip tribes, the Tualip tribe in Seattle. They all came to this concept that something something happened before which sets in motion for what happens now. And so they, they could think back in time, they could think forward in time, but in some ways thinking forward in time was, they knew it would happen, but it was unclear when it would happen. Whereas today, we manage livestock. Mm-hmm. We fundamentally manage agriculture. And through the management of those resources and storing them in you know, refrigerators and, 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 and dry storages, we we're able to control our own future, at least the food supply for our future. Right. Which is so unique. And so if we going back to the Drake equation, after where intelligent life evolves, the half a point five capable of interstellar communication. We're putting this out to the, you know, the millions of decimal places. Because what is the leap from going from being able to tell time, which I'm assuming Homo erectus knew how to do, and certainly people 34,000 years ago did because they actually had the full stellar catalog as the ancient Greeks, to go from 
timing by the moon, which we probably did for many, many millions of years, to that leap forwards for within the last few hundred thousand years to be able to actually communicate that's not verbal or out of a cave wall. We did that in fairly recent time. Mm-hmm. And in that fairly recent time, we also learned to have radio communication. Okay. Right. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, I'm not a, I, I don't want to say I'm an alien denier because I believe that to, to say you're an alien denier is, is that there were aliens or there are aliens. So the question to you now is there, based on everything you've heard in the last hour, or we've discussed in the last hour, is there life, intelligent life like ours in the cosmos? It's, it's a great question. Let, I want to I bring up a few points before I give you an answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first point I want to bring up is the formation of the Earth and the Moon system okay. from, from the beginning. Okay. Okay. So as we understand it now, we have to go back 4.5 billion years, and there was some collision. Mm-hmm. A collision between the Earth, the proto-Earth, and an object that would have been probably the size of Mars. We would have had a huge collision. We would have formed the moon orbiting... Oh, well, first it would have started out as a bunch of small particulate matter, but it would have eventually clumped up to the moon, orbiting around the Earth. Now, this is the only way, at least feasibly right now, that something the size of the Earth could capture something the size of the moon. In terms of the relative sizes between them, it is the biggest moon in our solar system. Correct. Now, naturally, there are bigger moons. You could look at Ganymede. You could look at the Galilean moons. You could look at some of the larger uh, icy moons. But in terms of sheer magnitude of relative size, the moon is the largest. And it probably wasn't captured by the Earth. And Mm. it probably didn't form without some cataclysmic event. Mm -hmm. So regardless, let's say it formed there 4.5 billion years ago. When did the very first simple cellular organisms form here on our planet? Do you know? I don't know, no. We think it's about 4 billion years ago, about 3.8 billion years ago. We would have had the very first simple cellular organisms, single cell. Now, how that happened is very interesting, and it has everything to do with the moon, Bernie. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this sort of origin of microbes but this is new to me okay this is interesting it has everything to do with the moon because at that time the earth was probably a pretty flat place when high and low tides happened they probably went miles inland and then miles back and they would have happened on approximately probably a six a six hour cycle because the moon was so much closer and because the earth spun so much faster Okay, we talked about the reverse earlier, how when the moon moves away, the Earth would slow down, the tides would dampen out. Well, this would be the opposite. We would now have much higher tides that would go miles inland. The Earth would spin much faster, and the moon would be much closer. Now, what happened, Bernie, is that we would have these tides that would get washed miles inland. We're talking many, many miles over a relatively flat surface. Now, what would happen based on the hypothesis of, of many people who study this, is that water would have gotten put into these tiny pools. And it's in these tiny pools 
on this relatively flat surface, because most of the water would be evaporated, except for the, the, the tiny pools of water that would accumulate in very specific regions, in these tiny pools is where you could have had the very, very first single cellular organisms forming, the very, very first amino acids, the very first... What's the damn word I'm looking for? The very first molecules. That's the word I'm looking for. That's where they would have formed, in these tiny pools, on this relatively flat surface. And what happens is now, six hours pass, you have tiny molecules beginning to form, the water rushes in again, and it pulls these molecules that have formed back out into the ocean. Now the molecules can interact with their environment and actually form single cellular organisms. But the complex molecules that make up life on this planet probably couldn't have formed in a sloshing ocean. They would have had to form in a relatively stable area. And that stable area was produced by the fact that tides got swept inland for many miles, formed tiny pools. Inside the tiny pools, molecules formed. The tides came back. They took the molecules back to the ocean. They deposited more water. Inside the more water, molecules formed again, and you had a repeating process. And that repeating process would have populated the world with tons and tons of molecules. And those tons and tons of molecules and amino acids would have went on to produce the single cellular and eventually the multicellular organisms we see today. Jesus Christ, I'm forgetting how to use words. So, but that is a very interesting thing because the moon from the get-go, Bernie, likely had everything to do. And we're not talking about the way it influences the way we think today. We're talking about the very fact that we're here was influenced by the moon. So let's say a, a planet has six moons that don't affect its gravitational pull. Because our, our moon can actually, you could, some people call it a, a, a small planet, right? A dwarf yeah. planet. Mm -hmm. okay. Because the, the, the one of the definitions, I'm not an astrophysicist, but my understanding, one of the definitions of a planet is that it affects the, the gravitation of another body, which our moon does. Yeah, ideal. I think the, the, maybe the criteria you're talking about is, is that um yeah yeah that would be, that would be a suitable thing um but the reason it's not considered one is because it has to clear its own orbit about the sun right. and of course exactly the moon doesn't do exactly that. so it's sort of like a it's a bastard child yeah that's what eliminated Pluto actually is the fact that <laughs> it's yeah, exactly yeah. so so among the other moons in our solar system how many of them have um, moon how many of the planets have moons that actually affect its gravitational pull that have gravitational pull on the actual planet essentially none exactly okay but th this is this is where we can start to extrapolate into important things because what we what we actually see though is the opposite we don't see the moon forming tides on the planet but if we look at the galilean moons bernie we can see the planet creating tides on the moon which is the same process but in reverse so that is why people have hypothesized that you could get a very similar sloshing effect on Europa that would create life underneath the icy surface. Oh, uh, interesting. Interesting. Yes. Now, of course, you have problems. The problems with Europa is, of course, that you can't have life forming on relatively flat planes on the surface of the planet. That's not going to work. You have to have some mechanism happening under the ice. But... It's probably pretty warm water. It's warm water because of the tidal interactions with 
Jupiter. Jupiter is causing the core of Europa to literally be stretched and squeezed. And that stretching and squeezing releases a lot of internal energy. And the internal energy acts to heat up the water. That's why the water's there to begin with. It's there because it's, it's warm. It's melted ice. So what you're saying, so Europa is, is one of the moons of Jupiter. What you're saying is that the equation is not so much, doesn't just have to be the planet, but has possibly could be adding moons, which are affected by the planets. Yeah, it's almost as if, Bernie, I, I, you're, you're, you're on to something here. It's almost well, as I think if... You're, on to, you're getting a noble for this one. This is, your, <laughs> this is yours. This was your night. I get 10% of this one. <laughs> it's almost as if the Drake equation shouldn't consider the word planet at all. It says average number of habitable planets per star. Yeah, it's almost well here's the weird thing though. The weird thing is that what's habitable mean? You know, that's the thing that always boggles my mind. Like what the hell does the <laughs> word habitable mean? Because that word doesn't mean shit. It doesn't mean anything. It's a useless word. Habitable? Anything could be look at extremophiles on the earth. We have small organisms that can survive inside of some of the hottest steam vents in the ocean beds. Right. That's where they live. They've adapted to live there. One thing that all of your examples has shown, hopefully to to me, it has definitely shown to me and hopefully to the viewers, is that life is very damn good at adapting. It's really good. And so I I pick a separate gripe. I think your gripe is valid with the Drake equation. Mm -hmm. It should take into account that not just any planet can harbor life. That moons are very important, but it should also take into account that life probably doesn't only form on warm places in sure. the Goldilocks zone with a with a very consistent atmosphere. Life is probably very adaptable to new environments, and we see that here, but we ignore it when we look outwardly. Exactly. So what, what this what this suggests is that. SETI, the listening in for radio waves is probably not going to happen, okay? But it actually asks us the better question of maybe we should spend more time on the exploration itself. So this doesn't throw away the, the, the space program. This just says we need to be looking rather than listening. As in, and are we've you been, advocating physic, physically... Somehow physical, sending well, physical, not me or, or you, because we're not um, right. qualified in so many ways, including wearing eyeglasses. Yes. Um, but um, but through you know, of course, artificial intelligence, robots, mm -hmm. um, to collect those samples and beam it back. And I think I think you're on the track, the right track. That we should be. It shouldn't be habitable planets per star. It should be habitable bodies per star. Yeah, it's almost as if you can't quantify that number, though. Right. Well, sure you can. You start quantit quantifying. Well, there could be um, not an astrophysicist, as you know, but could asteroids be carrying these these life forms? They they very well might. I mean, you can look at some bodies in in our own solar system that people have looked at before as like, ooh, could that thing have life? Could that Ceres is an example. Ceres is a is a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt. If it wasn't in the asteroid belt, it would probably be a planet. Correct. It just can't clear its orbit. Um, people have looked at that before as like, wait, could that thing have life? Could that thing have life? Could Mars have life? In fact, there's many people in this community, Bernie, who believe that Mars probably could not create life from scratch 
because of the fact that it has two tiny moons, Phobos and Deimos, orbiting around it, and those moons in no way could have affected the tides, and those tides could probably not have produced the diversity of life in as quick as the Earth did. Probably not. Correct. And so that the, the Drake equation is point two, the fraction where life emerges. So this whole thing, this, this, the Drake equation, do we throw out the Drake equation and write a new one, or do we modify what's already there? Or can it be even modified? Or do we have to call it a new equation? The state of the universe I, yeah, equation. I, 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 think the, I think the real equation is that there is no equation. That there is no equation, yeah. I think that's the real equation. The real it's equation that is that you, you, it's so impossibly hard to quantify. It's, you brought up the Fermi paradox, right? The Drake equation does not solve the Fermi paradox. Correct. And of course, the Fermi paradox for the listeners are that, well, where are they? Right. If, so the idea that life, you, you see billions of stars, hundreds of billions of stars, literally in our galaxy alone, hundreds of billions of galaxies. That means, Hundreds of billions of hundreds of billions of stars around which planets are probably orbiting. If, if, even if life is so incredibly, incredibly hard to, to form, like we're talking one in 300 billion. I remember on the, on Kev Baker's show, I said this. If you could imagine that only one in 300 billion planets forms life, well, there's more than 300 billion planets in every galaxy. Therefore, there should be life in every galaxy. But we don't see it. We can't detect it. And that's the Fermi paradox. Exactly. So why do we believe? I mean, you were by, my guess is a few, a few weeks before you started looking at my stuff on this, you were a believer. At least you weren't a denier. Right. Well, repeat what you said. So why, a few weeks before you started looking at my stuff or this, this concept – you were maybe you weren't a believer, but you weren't a denier, an alien denier. Mm, yeah, I'm like an alien agnostic, I guess. <laughs> so it's why like, do people believe? Why do people believe? That's what a, drives us. That's an excellent question. It's it's curiosity, I think. It's that we we want to have the answers always. It's innate to us. It's how we survive. We figure out the answers. That's how we've always survived. There's well, a problem. Goes- we solve it. I think it goes back to the, the cave images, and we we talked about in the previous show, is that the animals on the Earth were reflected those constellations in the night sky. So the horse became Pegasus, the the, the bear became Ursa Major, and the, the dolphin Pisces and uh, Cetus, the sea lion, uh, actually the, the seal on Earth became Cetus in the night sky. And I think that. And, and there's many human characters which became Hercules and Orion and, and so forth. I believe that this idea is in our psychology for at least tens of thousands of years. So we have an El Castillo for 30 to 34,000 years ago. It's in, our, it's in our psychology. It's in our myth. Um, it's in all, in all these stories that we tell that it has become part of the human imagination that we, we look to the night skies for the answers. And that for some reason, you know, Orion effectively becomes the big alien. Okay, I mean, whether or not we want to admit it, it, it's it's the being in the night sky, and that is in the religions that in the religions that we tell. Hercules, of course, can be transposed in the night sky with Zeus. Mm-hmm. He tra- he he transforms into um, through an eagle through the Aegea, 
and snatches the boy Anto- Antonius um, in, in that myth. And so we we apparently have this in our religion. And with Josephus, his antiquities, he, he's, he calls on um, um, Abraham as having that same concept that the, the stars are a reflection of the, well, there's a, there's a connection between the stars, the sun and the moon and the planets, to the, the earth. And therefore, um, we are connected to the cosmos. And I believe that that moment for that common ancestor of the chimpanzee, when they recognize, that person recognized that we were tied to the moon was important. But you have to re- you have to resync throughout the year and other than off the white pine butterfly, because white pine butterfly, you fundamentally have to be in the same place. Okay. All mm-hmm. the swallows for the Columbia Gorge have to be in the same place. But to actually become a migratory people, you had to be able to resynchronize the moon to the, the solar year. You can't use a sun. It's hard to use a sundial uh, because you're you're moving. But you could have done it as with the stars and keep re- re- resynchronizing the moon off the stars. Um, and I believe that was the the being that figured that out is the common ancestor for um, individually for the Homo erectus and Neanderthals and us and so forth because the that is so profound that the person intellectualized that Cirrus or Orion or Ursa Major were then tied to the moon. And in the history of mankind, we think of the geniuses, you know, Einstein and Galileo and maybe Copernicus and um, some people would say Picasso. Um, but, but really the true geniuses of all time were the millions of years ago, who, the individuals who made those connections. Yeah, I, I was going to bring this up actually. It's a shame that you know we obviously can't have written written dialogues of ancestors that far back, but the choices of people ten thousand years ago influenced who we are today a lot. In and based off of our previous previous uh, recording, I could say people and their decisions fifty thousand years ago influenced where we are today, and and I think that you're making a clear case that this is one example of such a thing. Absolutely. And it, it involves a consilience of the sciences, humanities to come to this point. You have to have been, you know, listen to the, the hunter gatherers, Native Americans and the, and, and the yammy. Um, you had to have been studying, looking at chronobiology and the biological clocks of plants and animals. You had to have been, um, looking at the myths. You had to have been listening to the astronomers and actually, um, making a connection between what the hunter gatherers were doing to the night sky. And that's what you do as a freshman or sophomore in college. But as the, all this information is basically thrown at you, but as you move on through the system, you specialize. Mm-hmm. And as you specialize, you, if you become an astrophysicist, you're not, re, you're not looking at the anthropological literature for hunter-gatherer calendars. Okay. And if you're, you're an archaeologist, you actually start looking at, you, you don't look at the night sky. Archaeologists need to take more astronomy classes because that is, that is our, our, um, our history. And so as we learned, to, we became our specialists, and as was argued by Einstein, um, that we actually knew less. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has quotes on that. And that it was the hunter-gatherers, that these Native American tribal, these fishermen and hunters, that were in touch with everything. They were in touch with the sun, the moon, the stars, and the animals. And a few years ago, I met 
I encountered, um, I'll call him a shaman. And he has a he has a different word for it. And among the, the one of the Columbia Basin tribes, and everybody knows this, this individual. Um, his his name is Thomas Morning Morning, Morning Owl. And Mo- Thomas, Thomas Morning Owl. Thomas Morning Owl. What yeah, a name. Morning Owl is actually named after a petroglyph in the Columbia series of petroglyphs in the Columbia River Gorge. It's a damn good name. And what he did at that time, and I'm, I assume he still does it today, is he goes out every night uh, before the dawn, and he he listens to the, the bird the, the animals in his environment. And he, he, he watches the stars. And as the stars disappeared, actually new stars, at the helical horizon of the stars, um, he would then time events among his people. So he would say when this hypothetical, this star rose, you know, one to five days later, they would have a ceremony. And what his tradition, which came, went back in time for hundreds of years, because he, he had the lineage of people, was that the, the great almighty was giving them those stars as um, as a clock, as a calendar, and that every year you need to go out into that environment to do the same thing in the same way as we, Abraham said. Now, what was what was really so we're looking through this this shamanic mind, perhaps even this animistic mind. If he had been looking at the same information, you know, months in advance, advance or years in advance to set up his calendar off his computer with Star Night Pro or just our own calendars that we use. He wouldn't have had that connection to the animals, his environment. Um, he would have lost it in the same way as we did when we came indoors and we found electric lights, when we went to Costco, you know, to fill our freezer with the salmon, um, or you know, the two five-liter bottles of olive oil. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we lost our connection as we came inside. Um, and that's that's really important. When I gave presentations on this topic years ago to the Columbia Basin tribes, they would, I had Native Americans were just in tears. I'm going to tell you that. Um, and they said they would say, you know, we had it all along, and um, and they were talking about we need to get back to these hunter gatherer practices. And I also gave this presentation to the, the presentation of the subject, not the, this Drake equation, but the biological clocks and the, the plants and nature. I gave it to the wildlife biologists who I was working with and also to people who were power managers in the Columbia river system. Um, and I proposed to them, you know, if, if you work, if you run the, the dams different ways and different cycle, you can actually pr- be producing more electricity when you're letting the juveniles go out. So they're not supposed to get crunched up in the dams and you'd save $15 million a day or some, some mm-hmm. incredible number like that. And they, um, you know, they looked at it and they, and their opinion was, we don't want to, make those few $15 million a day, we actually just want to run it 24-7 for the whole year. <laughs> we don't want to be thinking about this, the salmon itself. But the, as a concept, these this this biological um, hypothesis of the plants and the animals has a profound impact on the how we still run our world today, and in this case, electricity in the Columbia River system. And the Native Americans, they um, actually – Fish and wildlife biologists took my information or this concept, and they started to run their hatcheries a little differently. They wanted to feed the fish. They also, when they would be monitoring the salmon on the river, because they didn't be looking all the time if the salmon are only there at certain times. Um, and so this 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 uh, native this hunter gatherer wisdom that goes back tens of thousands of years, it was brought forward to modern science to make us more efficient in some cases, uh, which is quite. Um, but it goes back to this. We're going back to that question, though. You know, the primordial question: Are we alone? 
my answer, I think, would have to be no. I should say alone as intelligent time-keeping beings. Still, for me, no. Here's what I think, though. What what time scale have we been alive, technologically alive? I mean, hundreds how long? Of years. Have, yeah, how we've hundreds only, of years. <laughs> yeah, we've only been blasting radio waves into the universe for hundred yeah. years, yeah. a couple hundred years. Yeah. I'm curious where we go as a species if we manage to survive thousands of years, if we manage to survive ten thousand years. I mean technologically as a species, by the way, not as a species. Obviously, we've been around. But technologically, do we survive for 10,000 years? You know? Because there might be something about us. I mean, you can already see it in civilization. We are a very conflicted bunch of people. Mm -hmm. We love conflict. And it's built into us. You know? It's built into our very being that we're, we're conflicted. I mean, look at the people that live on North Sentinel Island. Did you did you hear about those individuals? North no, Sentinel how Island. Was that? This was well. This tribe. This is actually a really interesting tribe. You might you might be interested in studying them. They are a tribe that live in the Bay of Bengal, and they live on an island, North Sentinel Island, and they are an uncontacted tribe, one of the only uncontacted tribes that still remain uncontacted today. And they have been living in this primitive lifestyle for estimates range over a thousand years. And they have no technology. They still fish. They still build their houses completely off the land. They have no contact. They don't speak our language. They don't really understand bartering. They don't really understand trading. People have tried going there in the past and they've been chased away with spears and and arrows. And recently, a Christian missionary went there, which this is why I'm, I'm bringing it up because it was in the I news. This, yeah, now yeah. I the Christian missionary tried to convert them and then he got slaughtered. Um, mm. Now, that's a very dangerous thing because, mm. because they're such a primitive people. They don't have the immune system to withstand the viruses that you and I carry around on our skin every day. Mm-hmm. So even going there is very, very very careless and you know um it kind of angers me a little bit that that anyone would even think of doing that um but nevertheless you can see with them that we are a conflicted bunch of people when someone steps on our land our intuition tells us that we should take them out you know and so i wonder how long we can even last and i think that that might be an additional term in the Drake equation. How long does the civilization last? Because the Drake equation also makes kind of an assumption that all of the civilizations have evolved at the same time and are at the same period in their evolution at the same time. That they're all blasting out radio waves cohesively as a unit. But that's not so true. So the last yeah, the last variable is the number of broadcasting civilizations, meaning that it's either they don't exist or they've gone to a cable system where they're not using radio waves. Right. Um, and so the answer is, um, well, that's really one of the, that's one of the arguments now about SETI 
it, when we moved on to cable systems and stopped fundamentally minimize the radio usage, then SETI sort of had to refocus their mission mm-hmm. um, away from the the radio waves and the um, the cha- We also saw the movie Contact, brilliant with Jodie Foster, written yep. by um, who wrote the book? No clue. You know who wrote the book? You nope. actually know? Sure don't. Contact was written by um, the most famous astrophysicist Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. He wrote. He wrote. He wrote I did it. actually know that you were right. I was not. so convinced that you were wrong that I tricked myself. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the, the premise of that is that we found them through the radio waves, and that people knew the, the so-called aliens knew that we existed, mm-hmm. and and that the only way we could actually listen was through the radio waves that they specifically sent to us. Um, so in an infinite universe. Anything is possible, and she runs through a few wormholes to get to her her ultimate destination, mm-hmm. which is ultimately in the mind of Carl Sagan. Um, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> and, it's actually a damn good movie. I recommend anyone listening to go watch it. Well, they, we've all, they've already seen it. They've already seen it. If you, if you listen to this program, you've seen Contact. <laughs> um, you underestimate young people, I think. Yeah, so the, the question then becomes, you know, in an infinite universe, is anything possible? And then how many wormholes do you have to travel through to reach that that body, not a planet, where intelligent life evolved, where there was either this menstrual cycle concept with the moon or there was some other way that intelligent life evolves, some way that we couldn't even imagine. So what we're talking about today is basically coming from the mind of Bernie Taylor um, versus the, the annals of the peer review literature. And no, as far as I as far as I've read, no one's else come up with a reason how intelligent life has evolved, um, other than actually I haven't found it, heard any, um, other than some sort of brain change by someone a chimp ac- accidentally eating more meat and developing a different brain size or mushrooms, right? I've heard that or mushrooms. Too. Yeah, that's it. That yeah, that the finding conscious knew that through the mushrooms is um, I'm totally down. I'm totally off on the the hallucinogenic drug hypothesis <laughs> um, that we found consciousness through hallucinogenic drugs, uh, substances, plant substances. So an infinite universe where you could possibly have, I mean, anything's possible, but how many wormholes would you have to travel through to actually get there? Um, it, it would be, the, the, so the chances of, a, of actually a contact um, is so remote Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's incredibly remote that we, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't explore, right? Because you know we seem to get along better with dolphins than we do each other, um, and so maybe if we can we find um, bodies, not planets, and be moons that have some sort of some sort of being that can communicate with us, and we can learn back and forth with each other, then we don't pass on you know, common cold viruses and the flu, we can maybe all get along with each other. Uh, but I, I just don't, um, you know, I'm sure I'm, I'm putting the, the ancient aliens program out of business and you and I will never be invited to contact in the desert or anything like that. But it's not looking so good with this new, this different way of seeing the cosmos. And I really believe that this is the most, the biggest question of humanity is if we're alone, and the it answer is. to it is, it's it, we see it almost every night. 
if you walk outside and see, look to the night sky to see the moon and beyond that, the stars. Um, so we maybe we need to do a, you and I need to get out there, the SETI, and do a little presentation for the for the team um, and ex- further explore these concepts and see if someone can come up with an, an idea that modifies that what, what we're saying to, find, to see if there is some greater feasibility by seeing it different. And I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not saying that this is based on the concept of from the mind of Bernie Taylor, how intelligent life involves at least timekeeping intelligent life. But we may come across some other way that a different kind of intelligence that we couldn't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you look at, you know, the, the, the contact version was that Jodie Foster character meets a, a being that's not a being that has no biological form. So she met a, a, a consciousness that came into the, through the shape of her father um, who spoke with her. And so there would have to be, it's, we have to keep our minds open to the idea that there could be something beyond that we couldn't even possibly imagine. Therefore, we can't singly work off of physics or biology. But if we're using the Drake equation, which is fun, fundamentally based on physics, um, then if that deter- we can't use that to determine that, that probability because the physics doesn't really pan out. Um, when you start mixing the biology, as we suggest, but there might be something that we just, our feeble minds couldn't even imagine. Right. I mean, when was the Drake equation written? We're talking 1960s, maybe? About that time, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a very naive set of information, if you think about it. If you think about how much we've learned since then, um, I'm not sure, now I'm not in the SETI community, I don't know what the consensus in the SETI community is. I know that they don't really get funding from the federal government anymore because people have stopped believing in their techniques and even the feasibility of the project. Um, but I am agreeing. I agree with you that we can't comprehend what we will find when it comes to actually finding intelligent life. We operate on the assumption that other life will be like us. That could be true. could also not be. It could also be so far from the truth. I mean, they could literally have a completely different chemical makeup. They could be like silicon-based or something instead of carbon-based. So this is true. Now, I guess this, this, is, this is where SETI has some feasibility, okay? If you live, say a thousand light years away from Earth, if you're some intelligent life and you're out there and you built a radio telescope and you're trying to pick up radio waves, you will eventually get our signal. You will eventually find our signal. You'll, you'll be listening to I Love Lucy reruns or whatever broadcast you're listening in on on that particular day. Right? That signal's not going to go away. It's always going to be traveling through space. Now, if there's too much dust between us, then maybe you won't necessarily hear it very clearly. But the point is, there's no erasing that output, right? No matter how advanced we get, the fact that we were at one time emitting radio waves will always be a signature traveling through the universe, right? And so that's where SETI got their idea. They said, well, even if the civilization has matured and they're 
able to travel amongst the stars and they're able to do all this other cool stuff, they probably at one time put out radio waves into the universe when they were a young, naive civilization. Interesting. So the, my understanding is that SETI has SETI Institute um, is ninety percent non radio waves now, and because that's where they get their fund, they get funding for other astrobiological research. Um, oh, so they made the, a shift into astrobiology as opposed to observation. Correct. Yeah, actually, okay. not observation, but listening. You know, right. that, yeah, that, that fundamental listening. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. And I've recently connected with, you know, interconnected with people who are peripherally involved, and I had to kind of explain it, explain it to me. Mm-hmm. So when you, if you're out there like me now, talking about the the, the probability that it's not going to happen, you know, there's people who start to ask you questions. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're. Um, so what what do you think the chances are? I mean, that there has been. Intelligent life that had, actually say intelligent timekeeping life, because I believe that their life has come from other places to this planet um, through, you know, comets and so places like that. But what do you think, I mean, now what's going on in your mind is what do you think is the probability that there's been any sort of visitation by intelligent life in the time of this planet? In the time time of planet, intelligent life, timekeeping. I would say approaching zero. Approaching zero, yeah. It's hard for me to say zero, right? Because you don't want to rule anything out, but very close to zero. Um, So before we had this conversation, or you started looking at the stuff as I wrote it and started communicating, let's say five months ago, what would you have said? In terms of intelligent life visiting here, yeah, it it still would have been close to zero. But this conversation did help me illuminate some things, and those things are that moons are incredibly important. And also, something that's been brewing in my mind that we've just sort of reinforced throughout this conversation is how important time is—the ability to keep time, the ability to understand time. That's a very important thing. The, under, the ability to understand that it means something is important, right? If you – time is the, one of the weirdest things and there's some contention in physics about whether or not it even means anything because there's certain physical laws that depend on time. They look at all of Newton's stuff. I mean calculus is essentially all measuring changes over short intervals of time. That's all calculus is. You look at relativity. It's, it's It has components of time. But there are certain quantum mechanical principles now being developed that have no relationship to time whatsoever. So there's something very interesting going on here. This is an interesting conversation, Bernie, and I'm glad we had it. Because I think that your modifications to the Drake equation and your your proposal that moons are important and in particular that moons and cycles in the night sky teach civilizations about timekeeping and thus result in the emergence of consciousness maybe that's an important point and that's a point that deserves consideration yeah it's a um 
Well, when I wrote Biological Time, and people don't need to find that because everything in Biological Time has been before Ryan finding the face of the hero. Um, so you don't need Biological Time is uh, it's pretty much sold out. Um, you know so you're not a shill because you tell people not to buy your first book. Look at that. Yeah, well, it's it's all, all the work. There's updates to the work that's in Before Orion. Um, so people aren't really to go there. I have more of the calendars, and I show up how the caveman used the, the, the lunar calendars as well as the stellar ones. Um, and what's kind of interesting, too, is that they were they, – I, there's many of the images in the Pelican Caves are um, stenciled hands, and some are missing fingers. Or par- Actually, the, the, for a long time, archaeologists thought they were missing fingers, but they've kind of just thrown that out the window. Um, and what happened – actually, they're, they're dipping fingers or twisting them in different directions – and I proposed a biological time, and I found I actually came up with a timekeeping mechanism that the fingers are actually counting lunations in the same way that you can imagine we would do it. Native Americans did it the same way, um, some neighboring American tribes. And that the thumb was the around the vernal equinox, and then so it would be April, May, June, July. And that the the, the nomenclature or these kind of box characters next to the animals had the same no, had the same configure the same figure um, configurations told that time of biological events which were depicted in the animals themselves whether dropping of the young of the ibex or the dropping of the young of the mare and so forth and so they they carried this the calendar in their hand which also told how to communicate native america the great plains indians they had a sign language that was used entire from north to south you know into what we call canada down into almost new mexico and they, they never they, they didn't say, I'm going to meet you next month. They would say, I'm going to meet you when the bison drop their young. Huh. Um, so they, because the next the, their month, the word for month comes from the word moon. And they thought of the world as biological. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they would count lunations. And each lunation character was characterized by a different bi- by different biological events. And I believe that the Palatha Cave artists did the same thing and that they they kept they they did it in their fingers and they had these hand gestures which were which were quantifying uh, the, 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 the the lunation that's also depicted in the biological um, activity of the animal. And it was fair once once I how I figured that out and I'm pretty sure I'm fairly confident is that there's three animals in the Lascaux cave on one panel that each have grid patterns under them. There's an ibex that drops its young. There's a a pregnant um, mare horse, and then there's a cow. It's called a leaping cow. It's actually birthing cow um, that's dropping its young. And those three are actually three. They're next to each other. They have three consecutive lunations. And the nomenclature underneath them also shows the three changes in these grid patterns. So as a concept. Um, it, it, it was ra- it was you know kind of rational once you, you see how the whole thing works, mm-hmm. and then you can start applying that same concept to other images and other caves. So we, we we were there was at some point in time that we were not just being able to time the female uh, menstrual cycle to the moon, but we also figured out a way of carrying that knowledge with us um, anatomically. And I believe it was through these these original hand gestures, and so that we could travel from point A to B and C, and, and finally get back to the beach in time for some big, um, you know, running of the salmon 
that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so what, what that also says is that not only were we able to, there was some point in Homo sapiens that we we're able to communicate by this sign language that we can keep it in our fingers. It's a movable form that didn't require us to write anything down, but we had to have the ability to do that. And not all the primates can do that. That their fingers, the thumb and fingers are different than ours. Mm-hmm. And so there was some evolution uh, past the chim- you know, c- common ancestors of the chimpanzee. They were able to, so it's, it, we, we, de- we were biologically ready to do this. And it almost, you know, I'm not a biblical person, I'm not a religious person, so forth. But it almost speaks to what Abraham says, is that we, as homo sapiens, are so unique in who we are. And that we have this biological clock that's time to the moon. We have the, our hands, our fingers, which we can actually count things. And we can, we can represent the, the lunation as well as the figurative form of the animal. That we can project our psyche into the cosmos. That we can see the night sky. And we can see the, the animals up there that re- through the seasons that relate to the world around us. And that we can tell the myths and stories about them. That it is so complex. That it's, un- it's, Im- it's, unimaginable how somebody else could have learned to do it in the same way. And if we look at historically among other animals, been around for millions of the years, the, as far as we know, the dinosaurs didn't do this as, as long if it, mm-hmm. they were around much longer than us. And, uh, you know, birds can navigate by stars. And one of your listeners, I'm sure if you were listeners have figured this already knew this, they can navigate by individual stars that they've, they're kind of like, um, at a certain point in their life, they, they, it goes into their mind. But they don't actually rep- see a constellation. Um, and so we're so unique in all these different things that it doesn't mean that there is, there is a creator and there's a divine as, as Abraham reasoned it. But maybe Abraham, what he's really saying is that we are a, we're, we're tied to the cosmos. That without this fundamental astronomy that's biologically within us. Um, we can't, we wouldn't exist as we are today, and as it's an incredibly profound concept that when you start looking away from the DNA and the um, the microorganisms at this these minute level level of of um, animals and, and plants or life, that the, it's the bigger picture, it's the it's the cosmos that may be the answer to who we are and how we came to be. Excellent stuff. Yeah. So um, we need to have another. Sh- we need yes. to um, come back on another show on another day to explore another unique topic. I'd love to. I might do a whole show on the moon now. Just describe. <laughs> just describing this because this is really interesting work goes into the moon, and in fact, it's largely something that we don't fully understand yet. That's why I'm really excited about missions to go to the moon, missions to set up. Moon orbital, orbiters, uh, I'm not so much interested in that, actually. The Lunar Gateway, as it's called. No, I'd rather just go there. But I, it's something that I'm interested in, because we do need to understand the moon. Fundamentally, how it got there, how it formed. And I do think that that will have implications throughout all of anthropological history. And Yeah, you're, you're, I, think that, um, I think you're right. One of the things that you said in a previous show, you talked about the, the Chinese going to the moon. And on a lot of programs, they talk about, you know, them, the Chinese going to the moon. Mm-hmm. But clearly, it's, it has to be a, um, a global cooperative. And that, the, you know, the Chinese got to get off there. You know, we went to the dark side of the moon first or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And we got to get off that. We, we 
walked on the moon first, and that we really need to um, cooperate on doing this these projects together, and that they not just for national pride to beat them or so beat them is really mm-hmm. what it is, um, but more cooperative in the nature of everything, and because we're we all are we're all humans. Yeah, we all we all come from those same you know common answer with the chimpanzee that was you know feeding on shells at the beach and I came to recognize that the tides were tied to the menstrual cycle mm-hmm. um, yeah and that, continue sorry yeah we're we're common we're common beings and we need to do another show I agree yeah let's do it we'll do it a few months maybe a few yeah. months thank you Brandon I appreciate you coming on it was a fantastic conversation uh, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we can't talk forever. And so, people, thank you for listening. Submit questions if you have them. Submit them on the pa- on my Patreon page, on my website, on social media, to me, to Bernie, and we'll try to address any questions that anyone has for the next show. And with that being said, people, thank you for listening. Bernie, thank you for being here, and we're out. <laughs>